0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major. major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, I. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes.
1: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. I created this show. I'm the host of this show. Thank you for making it one of the most successful multi-platform interview shows in America. Thanks for finding it, however you find it. Great radio stations around this country, podcast platforms, CBSN, and Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124. However you find the show, thanks for digging it, thanks for getting the vibe. Thanks for joining us. Jill Schlesinger is our special guest. Jill Schlesinger is a CBS News business analyst. She's also an expert on all things economics. She has a new podcast debuting next week. Jill, welcome to the program. Tell us what the podcast is called and what it's about.
2: It is called Eye on Money, and it is all about you, the listeners and the viewers, the people who send me emails and questions All week long. You know, Major, uh, I have another podcast, a sister podcast called Jill on Money, and it used to be a twice a week kind of show and pretty normal format. But we went to a daily format with that podcast because people were so freaked out during the beginning stages of the pandemic. And now this is the next extension of it, which is keeping it real here in the CBS digital family, then the CBS audio family. So our boss, Craig, asked me whether I would develop a show for CVS. And this is the show, Eye on Money, which essentially is a way to help people educate themselves. And, you know, I think that really I was, uh, you know, I was. you said just before we came on the air that you had done a little meditation. I see that you're very relaxed. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but what I like to say about each of my shows is that I have a little bit of a mantra and I used to keep it, you know, to myself, but, you know, with... Um, My first show, I, I always felt like that it was about grit, it was about growth, it was about having grace and some gratitude. And I think with this show, it's really about curiosity. It is about compassion, because I think a lot of people start off with feeling really bad about their financial lives. And it is about community. So that's, that's my mantra for the new show, Ion on Money. And if anyone has a financial question, an economic question, anything like that major, I'm happy to look at your 401k. The CBS and You website is just a touch away for you. I'm, I'm happy to do it. And uh, you can send me emails, Jill at jillonmoney.com. So that's the pod. New one coming out.
1: So the teaser said that this show, CBS Ion on Money, will help you keep track of your money and your emotions. That is an audacious goal, Jill Schlesinger. That is yeah. really audacious. Yeah. Are you going to help people actually do both? Because I am. if you do, if you accomplish that, that will be the breakthrough show of all time.
2: Well, you know, I feel like that is my role because, you know, I, I wrote a bit, book about this a couple of years ago. And it was called The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. And the reason I wrote that book is that I was astounded when I had my my other job, which is before I came to CBS. I was a certified financial planner and I did it for a living. And I always was amazed at how many smart people were doing dumb things, making bad financial decisions, really shooting themselves in the foot. And it became clear to me that we are just wired as human beings to be emotional. And money can be a, an incredibly um, attractive way to work out any emotional crap that you have. And so it can be your fear. It could be your greed. It could be what how your parents treated you. It could be growing up with scarcity. It could be growing up with abundance. But our emotions are so vital in who we are as human beings. And you're going to feel those emotions. There's no doubt about it. But my hope is that I can help guide people to understand those emotions and make better decisions for themselves.
1: What's an example of an emotional bad financial decision? Is that like buying a sports car you can't afford or buying a bigger house just because you like the way it represents you or the things you've accomplished in your life?
2: Well, I mean, it could be. But let me do something that's a little more directly applicable. We all have friends at work who ask us questions. So when you come up to New York and I see you in the green room, what happens? I say, tell me what's really going on. And you give me a little backstory and we gossip, right? Okay. So we have uh, other colleagues. We have Dr. Tara Narula and Dr. John LaPook, and everyone asks them their medical questions. Well, I think it would be shocking for you to understand how many people ask me questions about their financial situation. And the way that I can say that is quite understandable for many people is that maybe some of you actually have 401ks where you can own company stock, right? You can own the stock within your 401k of the company where you work. And at CBS, there is um, often some stock compensation that goes along with certain people's uh, jobs. And so one of the dumbest things that you can do is to pile up a huge position in your company stock, thinking that it's only going to rise, as opposed to considering what happens when it goes down. So I will share with you, Major, not the names, although with enough whiskey, I might be able to get a name out here or there, of many people that you and I work with who called me up, who were freaking out a year ago, when the the share price of CVS was down in the teens and it went down to, to, I think, 12, 13 bucks a share. It then started. And so people were freaking out. And I knew how much money people had in their accounts, because they would say to me, I have this much money. Well, how, why would you have that much money? Well, I never thought it would go down this far again. So then it comes roaring back. And so that your fear takes over and you're scared. Then it comes roaring back and uh, CBS, Viacom CBS, actually became a mean stock this year where the stock went up and it went up enormously earlier this year. And I would say to these people, you held the stock at 13, 15, 20. Now it's at 70, it's 80. Yeah, but I think it's going to keep going up. That right there. Is among the dumbest things that you can do. So you cannot time the market. But what I do tell people is the dumb thing, that kind of dumb thing, it's off. It can be fixed. The kind of dumb thing that can't be fixed is that you happen to die and you don't have your estate planning done. The far, the just the absolutely the worst thing you can do. So there's a lot of dumb things out there. Thank goodness. Uh, give me, give me a lot of material for the book.
1: So you mentioned one thing. I want people to understand because I don't even understand what is a meme stock.
2: Ah, brilliant. Okay, so. A meme is usually something that catches fire through social media, right? So it could be on Twitter, but it could be on a message board like Reddit. And, uh, you know, you've seen little things that come alive. It could be an image and it can be a saying, right? Well, earlier this year... There was a lot of chatter on uh, on Reddit, which is you know again it's a message board, and there's a subreddit called Wall Street Bets, and it was really it was kind of a cool thing for someone like me because it felt like wow this is neat. There's like a conversation going on about investing among people who were stuck home. Some of them got checks from the government. Some of them didn't need that money, and they wanted to learn about investing, so they go and get that information and what they didn't know was that part of the community was really trying to create some pressure against people called short sellers people who bet against the fortunes of a big publicly traded company so they looked at you know GameStop as one of these big companies GameStop i mean i had not honestly like thought about GameStop for years until this year again right it was a brick and mortar seller of video games. Huh? Like, so a lot of people have bet against it.
1: (laughs) So 1990s, early 2000s. Yeah,
2: exactly. I remember when my now 28 year old nephew wanted me to get him games for his birthday, I would go into GameStop and get him a game. And so now there was this chatter, which was there's a whole bunch of people taking bets against this company. Let's go out and buy it. Let's buy GameStop let's buy AMC, which is, you know, a movie theater company. Let's buy Viacom CBS. Let's buy these companies that are being sort of left for dead in some respects or bet against. And let's go and put pressure on the people who s- took the bet against us. And those stocks started zooming up in value. And this is called uh, in, in the parlance of Wall Street, which is called a short squeeze. You bet against the stock, then all of a sudden at some point you say, I've lost so much money, I can't I can't bet against it anymore. You get out, and that's it. Let
1: me stop you right there because I've got a short squeeze, meaning a time break I've got to hit. So on the other side of this break, more on the short squeeze and more on the narrative about GameStop, and was it actually true? I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just a second.
2: You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome back. Jill Schlesinger is our special guest. Jill was in the middle of a conversation about a short squeeze. We had to be squeezed by a time constraint to meet our first break. Joe. please pick up. And I want to talk to you about whether or not this GameStop narrative, which you were in the middle of describing, was actually true. We'll get to that in a second. Pick it up.
2: Well, here's the thing. GameStop was a company that was in transition. And there were some big bets of folks who thought that perhaps GameStop, if it just shifted its strategy from brick and mortar to online sales, could survive. And so there, I think both sides had a good point, which is if they were going to stick to old retail brick and mortar sales, then yeah, it was going to flounder. But if they could transition and bring this company into the 21st century where we stream games and it did have a brand that engendered a lot of loyalty among some of the older gamers that yeah, it could survive. So um, look, the stock is certainly not at the peak of where it was. It's not down in the basement anymore. They're trying to make a transition to a different company, and we'll see if they make it.
1: So the narrative, if people remember it at the time, was this Reddit army of retail revolutionary stock buyers resuscitated GameStop, created this atmosphere in which hedge funds had to protect themselves and in some cases were unable to protect themselves by the surge in the stock price and they were squeezed. About two or three weeks later, I read a story that said data shows institutional investors as drivers of large portion of wild price action in GameStop. GameStop was not in the 10 most bought names by retail investors last month, meaning these Reddit revolutionaries. It wasn't David versus Goliath. It might have been Goliath versus Goliath, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. One of the real t- difficult aspects of having conversations with anyone about investing is that sometimes you don't know where, the, where their own position lies. So you can go on to a Reddit or a subreddit, and say, my name is Major, which is probably not a great name, because if you say I'm Major from DC, we probably know who you are. But let's say you change your name. Kind of a giveaway. Yes, exactly. I'm Michael from DC. And here's what you make that you articulate the case for GameStop. There's no real way that we know whether or not you have an enormous position where you've already purchased those shares. Now, look, there are securities rules That exists. The SEC is monitoring this. They don't want people out there hyping up a stock if they already have a huge position in the stock. But if they were obvious reasons, right? But if they were to disclose that position, then you know what? Maybe it's okay. There, you you may have seen on many financial broadcasts on television where they say so and so has a position in this company. There, you're totally able to talk about it, but you've got to say hey, I'm major from D.C. and I own 14 million shares of this company and you put it out there. The SEC wants to kind of clamp down on making sure that people aren't talking up or down any publicly traded company.
1: Right. And we've been dwelling on this for a couple of reasons. One, it's an interesting story. One, the narrative that was so fixed for a moment may not actually be true. And The other element of it that fascinates me is that if people are going to get into this world, you better know what you're risking when you get into this world. And you can get caught up in this Reddit revolutionary fervor, but there are still risks there. And you better understand what they are before you get in there just so you're educated about that. True?
2: Absolutely. I mean, look, I think that anytime that you are looking at something that's called a revolution, it's probably not a revolution. It's probably an evolution. And part of this evolution is a really wonderful thing. And that is that the cost of actually buying and selling securities is essentially zero right now. And that's a great thing. It used to be when you and I first were growing up and contributing to our retirement accounts, the cost of investments was so much more expensive. Now that cost has come down to zero. So that's great. And that's a great revolution, evolution in investor uh, democratization of investing. However, what is also important is that when you take a leap of faith into a single stock or even a few stocks to understand, hey, I'm doing this to learn. I'm doing this to hopefully make a few bucks, but I could lose everything I put down. That's also important. And you know what, Major? I put this in the same category of, hey, I want to learn about cryptocurrency. I want to learn about digital assets. So I'm going to throw a little money at this thing and see where it goes. That's fine. But it is akin to walking into your favorite casino and saying, let me see how far this money takes me. It's entertaining. It's educational. I love shooting craps, but I could lose it all. And if you go with that mindset, you're going to be far better off.
1: Joe, you have a uncanny way of getting to every magic word on my mind. You just said cryptocurrency. So I want you to help my audience understand what a cryptocurrency is. But the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read you a headline that I read this morning that I don't understand at all. Here's the headline. Dogecoin surges more than 30% and the crypto army cheers as Coinbase Pro Network opens to transfers. Okay, I understand what surges mean and transfers. Other than that, I'm completely lost.
2: Um, you know, this would make my seventh grade English teacher, Mrs. Peacock, very happy. We're going to diagram the sentence. Did you learn Thank how to goodness. diagram? Did you ever learn how to oh, diagram Oh, yes, sentence? I
1: did. Oh, now yes, we're I showing did. our age. Not only in English, but in Latin.
2: Okay, so there you go. Um, all right, so let's start. Let's go backwards.
1: Right, please. In
2: 2008, 2009... There was this weird thing called Bitcoin, and there was a manifesto written by someone who we don't know. It's an anonymous person or persons that said, I have an idea. It would be very cool if we could create electronic currency, meaning that, Major, if I had a dollar bill and I handed you a dollar bill, you could hand me a dollar bill, and that's an exchange. And there's no one in between us, right? There's no middleman. There's no big financial institution. There's no way electronically to do that before before this manifesto came out. Why is that important? Because at the time, remember 2008, 2009, high distrust of financial institutions that nearly took our entire economy over the ledge. And this concept of saying, hey, is there a way to actually transfer money to one another without a financial intermediary? That's super cool.
1: And verifiable through a digital Fingerprint or footprint or something of that metaphorical That's Exactly ilk.
2: right. Exactly. And so the. And the-
1: it's, it strikes me, Jill, that that was particularly relevant at the time because one of the reasons the financial collapse occurred is because nobody knew who purchased all these real estate assets that had been bundled over set. And there should have been an absolute, positively verifiable paper trail, and there wasn't. So this idea of blockchaining anything that you move, one dollar from one person seem to be really relevant and cool, but also necessary.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I love that you use the word blockchain because we just lost half the audience. Uh, No, okay. (laughs) Uh, So uh, when major uses blockchain, just think of like a shared Google document. Just think of it that way, that we can share the information. We know who holds what. And um, I might not know your actual identity, but I know what computer you've come from and where that money is moving. Now, you're absolutely right, because there were so many aspects of the financial crisis that were sort of steeped in opacity, that there were were a bunch of people who had things that were invested, and they were borrowing money, and we didn't know how much money they were borrowing. And so all of this really got convoluted. So in comes blockchain, in comes the shared Google document, if you will, and we have something born called Bitcoin. Now, look, in the early years, my first Bitcoin story on the air, I think was 2012. So by the way, duh, wish I'd bought that at a thousand bucks, but, um, I didn't. So I'm a wimp. Um, but what's interesting about it is that in the early years, it was kind of scary because it seemed to be, um, used by people who were doing nefarious things like, you know, trafficking drugs in the gray market, the black market. And, you know, we didn't know how to track that. and, And it made people very nervous. So that's when you had a lot of the big institutions say, this is not anything real. Now, flash forward a dozen years from those early days, and what we know is that big institutions are now behind the idea of this electronic transfer of money. And big institutions support means that they have now gained wider adoption and currency in the universe.
1: And the Federal Reserve has announced it is looking into the possible applicability of digital currency in the United States. More on that, inflation, labor shortages, all sorts of cool economic stuff with Jill Schlesinger, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just one second.
0: CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome back. As I said at the top, thanks for finding the show. For those of you who've just found it in the last year or so, you don't know what this show had been for so many years before the pandemic. It was in a restaurant every single time. And we've had to, of course, bring the show to my dining room for the entire pandemic. We're going to get back to restaurants in the not-too-distant future. I'm hoping July, certainly by August. We won't do it every week because we've learned in this show that you can have amazing guests via Zoom, and the audience experience and the knowledge dropped is amazing. Jill Schlesinger is a perfect example of that. We couldn't do this if we were in a restaurant in D.C. because she's in New York. So we'll vary, but we're going to get back in the restaurant. You're going to get that feel, that experience. I just want to let you know about that. So, Jill, we were in the middle of talking about digital currency going from the margins to now the mainstream i mean when the economist magazine it calls itself a newspaper but when the economist puts digital currency on the cover you know it's legit and mainstream and coming your way
2: yeah or when my mother the 81 year old lady in the suburbs of new york city starts asking me about it you know it's gone mainstream so um, what are, what the, are th- the
1: implications for it? What yeah. are the high sides? What are the low sides?
2: Well, I think that, first of all, um, the original sentence that we were trying to diagram, you mentioned something called Coinbase. And Coinbase is a place where, which has actually gone public. Um, and it's a place where you can buy fractional Shares of the digital currencies and digital assets that are out there. Okay. And so that's important because if you're now able to buy it someplace and more people can do it, you get more people into the market. And so, as you noted, the Federal Reserve, Lale Brainerd, who's one of the governors of the Federal Reserve, started talking about, like, well, you know what? Maybe this digital thing is okay, but we want oversight of it. And I still think that that's critical because um, we saw. Uh, Bitcoin go from sort of 30,000, 20,000, 30,000 up to 60,000 almost and now back to the 30s because the Chinese government cracked down on it and said, we need to actually monitor this more and regulate this more. So I think that there's a regulatory aspect. We now know that there's wider adoption. Um, Is this going to be something that just goes away? I don't think so. I think, again, Forgetting about what you call it, whatever, if it's Ethereum or if it's Bitcoin, whatever it is, the idea that you want to electronically send money to somebody else without some bank in the middle taking fees out, that's an appealing idea. And now this, now crypto makes it possible. So moving it into the next era is the question of, is it going to be used in that way, which is the original concept? Or is it just going to be an asset that people sit on and hope keeps going up? And I think that whether the outcome of this is that it becomes something like gold, which is just like a store of value that that investors buy, or whether it's really used, we don't know yet. I hope it really is used, though.
1: So let's talk about the thing that has been in almost every financial and economic-related headline for the past two to three months, inflation. What can you tell my audience about what they're experiencing now and what they might be experiencing four to five months from now and how big a monster or not monster is inflation at the moment?
2: Depending on where you come from, this is a huge problem or it's not so big a problem. And so let's talk about what's happened. There are a couple of issues that have created real pressures in prices. Number one, obviously, when the economy was frozen a year ago, prices went down. If you recall, there did stories about the fact that crude oil actually traded negative, meaning that producers had to pay someone to store a, their oil because nobody wanted it. All right, so obviously the comparison to a year ago is going to show that prices are up dramatically. So that's one aspect. Second aspect, the supply chain issues, things are bottled up. And think of it this way. Um, if I run a huge sawmill, And I say, I need to create lots of lumber. Well, a year ago, I made a decision, shut it down. Who the heck's going to want lumber? But then we then, like literally within 90 days of things really being shut down, people say, get me out of the cities. Let me do a remodeling on my house. And the demand for lumber rises and the sawmills are caught short. And so they are catching up now. So we have sort of two parts of that, the supply itself, but then demand surged now demand is starting to surge for other goods and other services. So put it together and you have prices going up. Are we going to see double digit inflation of the 1970s? No, we're not. And the Federal Reserve does not appear to be that worried about inflation right now. They say two things. One, We think it's temporary. They use the word transitory just to screw with you. But it's they mean temporary. So they say it's going to be transitory. It's going to be higher prices for a while, but then things will settle down. And they said, even if prices don't settle down that much, we have we, the Federal Reserve, we have tools to fight inflation. We can raise interest rates. We can unload some of the bonds that we bought during this crisis period. We'll keep an eye on it. Now, when I talk to economists every day, they are a little freaked out about inflation. Number one, we haven't seen inflation basically in more than a decade. And number two, they're worried that the Federal Reserve always tells us they have the tools, but they're often late in employing those tools. And then prices get away from us. And many economists fear that just the idea of trying to snuff out inflation will kill off the recovery.
1: Right. And the component part of this is, Wages, because wages paid for labor is an important component part of ultimate price. And there is this idea that there's a labor shortage. The analysis I've read is, no, it's not a shortage. It's a rethink. And some people who would previously have taken a job at a fixed rate are saying, no, no, I learned from the pandemic what goes on. I learned my value is higher. And I'm going to wait until you price my value higher to bring me off the sidelines If those wages are reflective of that intent and employers do have to pay more to bring people off the sidelines, this could continue. True?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, there's a couple of things here. If you were lucky enough to keep your job during the pandemic.
1: As you and I both were lucky enough to do that. I've said that a hundred times on this show. I'm one of the most fortunate people in this country because the work I do, largely, almost entirely I could do in this format and stay employed. And I'm incredibly fortunate.
2: Exactly. And for a lot of workers in the United States, they were able to do that. So what do we know? We know that 22 million people were out of work April of last year. A good chunk of those folks are back to work. There are still 8.4 million people that uh, fewer jobs, rather. There are 8.4 million fewer jobs than existed pre-pandemic. And what's holding it back? There are a number of issues that are creating a problem or a barrier. Okay, so number one is that women especially were forced to stay home with their kids because they were the primary caretakers of their kids or maybe their aging parents. And so to get them back to work is going to take a lot, because if I don't know that my kids in school or has daycare, what am I going to do? I don't have a nanny at home. Thank you very much. It's me. So those folks were home. And, you know, obviously as the uh, vaccine became more prevalent, it didn't solve a childcare issue. And so we had to kind of wait till the end of school. And probably I would imagine till we get kids back in school full time in the fall before a lot of these people are going back to work. Number two, you're absolutely right. We had low wage workers who were on the front lines who put themselves at risk and said, good Lord, why am I doing this? This is a rotten job. I'm a food service worker. I'm this, that I don't have any benefits. I'm making nine, 10 bucks an hour. Maybe what I'll do is I'll collect my unemployment insurance, my extra benefit. This is what the Republicans are freaking out about. They're saying, oh, these people are staying home, like almost like in an accusatory way. And I say, well, they're making the smart economic decision. If I can stay home and make 750 bucks a week, take care of my kids and not be at risk. Why am I going to work and making 550 bucks a week? That's a dumb trade. So thank you for being rational actors, Americans, and taking the money. But that money is going to run out September 6th, right? And for many people in certain states, it's already running out. And those people are going to come back into the labor force. As those people come back into the labor force, will wages rise enough to employ them all and get them back in the labor force? I don't know. I think they will. The critical issue among employers that I speak to is the big employers, they don't care about this. They're already paying 15, 20 bucks an hour. They're fine. You want to go work at an Amazon warehouse, you're going to get a good gig. But small employers are very worried about this. They say we don't have the capacity to step up and pay those higher wages. And it's just a case where the big keep getting bigger and squeezing the little guy out. And that is going to be an interesting thing to see develop. Again, 8 million people are probably, uh, you know, millions of people are going to be coming into the labor force over the coming months. So ostensibly, we should get a lot of jobs filled and wages should rise, but not by so much as to snuff out corporate profits.
1: And one of the things I think Jill would agree with me on as we go to our last break for the radio segment of this program is that we're going to see a lot of friction in the economic data for the next two or three months, maybe six months, because we're just going to be sorting out all the different behavioral, economic, and psychological reactions to coming out of the pandemic. I'm Major Garrett, Jill Schlesinger as our special guest, back for segment four of The Takeout in just one second.
0: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible From CBS News, this is the Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: Jill Schlesinger is our special guest. Jill, tell everyone again what you do for CBS and what the name of your new podcast is.
2: I have a totally made-up title. I just want to point that out. And years ago, when the I best first kind. Came...
1: They're the best yeah. kind. Come on. Um,
2: year, years ago, when I first came to CBS, they said, what, "What should your title be?" And I said, "I don't know." And uh, uh, a very storied professional in the CBS Radio Division named Constance Lloyd said. I know what you're going to be. You're going to be the CBS business analyst. And I said, OK, that's fine. So that's my job. That's uh, the CBS business analyst. I try to make sense of economics and corporate stories and personal finance stories for the CBS news division. And um, and I also have a couple of podcasts. One is called Jill on Money and a new one that is coming out called Eye on Money. And I also have a radio show called Jill on Money on, I don't know, 140 stations across the country.
1: Excellent. So in our last segment, I want to talk about real estate, both for homes and for commercial real estate. And I want to start. I'm not going to. Do where you think I'm going to do, audience, and go to home buying real estate because I think the commercial real estate issue is a big one for our national economy. Jill, I've been reading all sorts of stories. Distress looms over U.S. commercial real estate in 2021. This idea that if we don't go back to work as much as we did, all of this accumulated loans, debt, positions in commercial real estate may go through a very wicked transition period and lots of losses may accumulate and that could have Far-reaching implications for the national economy—not just this year and next year, but for
2: several years. Yeah, I mean, look, the commercial real estate issue is a problem, and um, and obviously, we don't really know. As you said, things are shaking out, data shaking out, but so too is the idea of like, what is work going to be? Are there going to be physical workplaces that are going to be as vibrant? Are companies going to reduce their footprints, freeing up all sorts of commercial real estate? across the country. Um, we already knew that there was a, a bit of a, there was a problem in retail commercial space, unless you were in um, uh, inner city where there was a vibrant downtown. High but traffic
1: even, area, right.
2: Yeah. And even that it was tough, but obviously- but Shopping the pandemic,
1: malls, that's been a problem for five years, if not 10.
2: Exactly. But what the pandemic did, as it did with so many other things, is it acted as an accelerant to an underlying trend. And the accelerant now is that commercial real estate is going to rethink how it does business. Now, we've seen some of the large commercial real estate companies going out and buying brands, going out and buying store brands out of bankruptcy, picking them up and saying, that would be a good anchor tenant for me, and I can run it better. And I don't need to have a publicly traded company. The other thing that big companies are starting to do is commercial real estate companies, is really say, what are the use cases? Instead of having, uh, CBS News in a building. Maybe I'm going to have more medical facilities. Maybe I'm going to have more healthcare facilities. Maybe I'm going to convert to uh, do, uh, primary dwellings for individuals. So it's going to. I don't think it's going to be a disaster. That's just me because I and I'm usually a Cassandra. I usually think the world's coming to an end. I think that's called being born Jewish in New York. But I I, I really don't think it's going to be a disaster. And by the way most of these real estate companies are not over leveraged they haven't used tons of borrowed money they own a lot of their greatest properties outright or with with reasonable mortgages so that's something that can keep the market more in balance
1: and things could be taken advantage of in a creative way there could be more housing stock there could be more healthcare stock there could be more retail things done differently or interestingly I think there's just a whole range of possibilities that are opened up and will be opened up in this space for the next ten years. So we got about four minutes to go. Uh, it is impossible. Also, if you're reading anything about the real estate market for home buyers, to not understand that in most markets in this country, prices are moving and moving up rapidly, relentlessly. If you put a, a bid on a house, you better assume you're going to have to be ten, maybe thirty, maybe fifty thousand dollars over asking, and you still might not get it what are some of the things people should understand about where we are and where we might be heading in the next six months or
2: so? Um, pandemic was an accelerant to an underlying trend in the residential market as well. We had suffered from low inventory. And this is a weird hangover from the actual uh, financial crisis in the housing boom and bust of the 2000s. And that is that after that bust occurred, a bunch of Big private equity firms pooled money together and bought distressed properties. And many of those distressed properties, what they did was they took them out of the marketplace, right, and they converted them into rental properties. And so what we found was that the, the housing stock, usually you would think, oh, you buy a property, it goes up in value, you flip it and you sell it. They didn't. They kept a lot of those properties and that reduced housing stock. At the same time, you know, we had a housing crisis. There weren't people running around looking for houses so quickly. It took a long time to recover. And so we had builders who were really slow to get back into the building of the market. Well, now comes along the pandemic, as we discussed about the lumber prices, we had so many people saying, oh my God, I've got to buy a house now. And I'm leaving the city and I need space. And gosh, maybe I am going to be working from home. This has put so much pressure on the market. Now, Will the housing inventory increase? Absolutely. However, you know, remember what happened last year. You had a whole bunch of people who just said, I'm not downsizing. I'm not selling anything. I don't know what's going to happen, especially anyone who's over 60 years old, who is at risk. I don't want some traipsing in my house. I want to stay where I am and I move forward. So inventory should increase. That said, if you're in the market right now, I would say, (sighs) take a deep collective cleansing breath, my friends. It's nuts out there. Always be sure that you understand what is the maximum you could pay and actually create opportunities for yourself in the future. If buying a house means you cannot contribute to your 401k, you can't pay down that student loan debt, you can't actually live a life, then don't buy a house. I don't care if interest rates are going up because if interest rates start to rise you'll pay more for a mortgage, but you'll buy a house you can afford at the right time in your life. Always understand that renting is an option in many markets in this country. It is far cheaper to rent right now than it is to buy.
1: So you talked about inventory going up. I wonder this, Jill, say I'm someone who is thinking about a project in the next 12 to 18 months and I go to a potential builder and they say, I can't give you a bid. Because I don't know what my material costs are going to be 12 months from now. Does that inhibit me making that decision? And does that make inventory less available 18 months from now?
2: Yeah, it does. And, and it's a problem. And by the way, a lot of those folks who are in the building industry say to me, one of their biggest problems is labor. Because after the last, you know, housing crush, many people left the market. And they said, I'm not going to be in the building industry again. My whole livelihood went out the window and we actually don't have enough builders. We don't have enough people to, for construction. So absolutely it contributes to it. But you know, um, in the world of, of trading, we used to call this a melt up where, you know, it's just like, just everything starts to bubble up. Every single factor and every variable contributes to price increases. So again, There are a lot of great calculators out there. In fact, the New York Times is a really good calculator. It's a rent versus buy calculator. And if you just say NYT rent versus buy, you look at your own market, you might be better off renting. And for all of you people, it's thinking like, oh, I'm throwing my money out the window by being a renter. No, you're not. You know what you're doing? You're buying flexibility, you're buying opportunity. You may be making a smarter financial decision and waiting until things settle up in this market. Believing these conditions will not last forever, nothing ever does when it comes to laws of supply and demand.
1: Nothing ever does when it comes to law of supply and demand. Jill Schlesinger has been our special guest for our radio audience. We need to say farewell. Thanks for sticking around with all this knowledge from Jill Schlesinger. For those on the podcast platform and CBSN, stay tuned for your takeout outtake, especially on Major Garrett. We'll see you next week.
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Jill Schlesinger is our special guest, Jill. Um, this is the fun and game segment there. Sometimes I create more heaviness in this segment than maybe listeners expect. I want to try to be as light as I can for our six minutes on this. So um, what is in your life fun about watching money and watching economics?
2: Well, it's, it starts with your original premise, which is, I love that there are emotions. You know, my first job on wall street, I was a gold, silver and copper options trader on the floor of the commodities exchange. So for you old farts out there with me, bring back your brain and remember the movie trading places. That's where I worked. I was one of eight women with 800 men. Okay. I was 21 years old. I had people calling me words that are I believe me, you cannot say on this podcast and you not can't safe say they, for work. It, yes, they were then,
1: but they're not now, thank goodness.
2: And, and they probably weren't even then. And what always fascinated me is and my dad was a trader and I would say to him that was such a, but he made the wrong decision, and you know, again, options. These are derivatives. These are mathematical models uh, that are based on a contract in gold, silver, or copper. And he would say, "Honey, they 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 are trading because they are human beings. They think they can. Their emotions are going to lead them." And 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 they, I I was very fascinated with that idea early on. So why do I love this stuff? Because it's really about. who we are as human beings, that our emotions are part of who we are. We don't always make the best decisions. And if I can go a tiny bit out of my way and help a few people understand complicated things or things that freak them out and help them along, then that makes me feel good. So I love that. I also love that when it comes to economics in general, that it takes a really long time to understand what's going on in the economy. And so in real time, it's almost impossible. You can have the smartest people in the room, they look at the same data points and they come to different conclusions.
1: Precisely. You mentioned this in the main show and I wanna focus in on it a little bit because I totally agree with you and I think it is one of the blind spots people have. They don't prepare for the end of life and they leave things unraveled. That's a big mistake.
2: Oh yeah. No, listen, if you wanna be upbeat, let me just tell you my favorite thing to talk about is death and dying. (laughs) All right. There's there's your laugh line. Come on now. Um, uh, Thank you. Uh, So I, I, okay. Here's another thing. Like I'm not freaked out by numbers. I'm a little bit of a quad. I love statistics. I'm coming out of the closet right now. Okay. Like I love all that stuff. The other thing that I really um, find fascinating is how freaked out people are about estate planning. Some of our colleagues who I nudged into getting their estate planning done, Um, have said to me, like, I don't know why I have such a hard time with this. I said, well, I don't know. You have to contemplate your death. You have to contemplate who's going to get your money. You have to contemplate all these things. And it's really upsetting. So um, I think it's one of those weird situations where you think you're avoiding it because you don't want to deal with this this really heavy-duty issue. But in fact, dealing with it allows you to move on and not stay steeped in it. Also, I do a little bit of- It allows
1: those you love to move on.
2: That's exactly right. I was going to say that it, it, it in some respects, what I say in my book is that not planning for your estate is perhaps a way to die and become the most selfish person in your family. Because when you die without making these choices, without having conversations and without putting it down on paper or electronically, you are forcing your heirs to untangle a hot mess They are robbed of their grieving period. And frankly, it's just awful to imagine that the state in which you reside is gonna determine where your stuff and your kids go. So you wanna take control of it. You wanna work with someone who's qualified. Or, you know, by the way, there are some good online options, but the reality is do this, get it off your list. You will feel virtuous for having done it.
1: And at what age should you start thinking about this?
2: Well, I mean, look, The weird part about the pandemic is that it kind of taught you that at any age, this stuff is like in your face. So there are three core documents that pretty much any adult should have. It's a will. It's a durable power of attorney that assigns someone the right to make a financial decision if you're incapacitated and something called a healthcare proxy. Now, a lot of the young people that I used to get um, questions from would be like, well, why do I need that? And I would say, well, you know, you walk around in the world, weird things can happen. Well, weird thing just happened. And we just learned that. And so if you just commit it to paper, there are, again, there are online options that are totally affordable. There are things that pass by contract. My 401k, I have a beneficiary. That's fine. But there are other things. You have things that like I'm looking in your background and there's these wonderful things, these objects that mean so much to you. You want them to go to certain people. You say that you want there. You want your life prolonged. You say that you don't want your life prolonged. You say that make it happen,
1: write it down. So Yes, here are the three threshold questions, the true fun and game segment of this program. So, Jill, in any order you wish to answer them, uh, most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies... And if you're going to listen to some music that you really, truly enjoy and you're indulging yourself musically, what kind of music, artist or genre are you most likely to listen to?
2: Okay, so I'm going to just choose a book that is a very old school trader's book, that if you're going to be buying crypto, if you're going to be buying a meme stock or you're just going to start investing and you want to understand the mindset. There is a 1923 book called Reminiscence of a Stock Operator by a guy named Jesse Livermore, And it is um, it will tell you everything you need to know about anything having to do with investing. So that's number one. Um, Now, my second question was, what was my middle one? My uh, my movie. Um, I'll keep it in the right theme. Um, You know, I love trading places, which I think has the best explanation of commodities trading out there. Um, and music. Okay, here's something fascinating. So what do I love? I love Broadway musicals. And I am a huge fan of Sondheim. So if I want to like, just sing at the top of my lungs, I will put on the Sirius XM Broadway channel and pray that there is a Sondheim a song from company a song from Sweeney Todd And it will elate me and rip my heart out at the same time.
1: Excellent. Jill Schlesinger, it's been a gas to hang out with you for an hour. Thanks for dropping all the knowledge. Thanks for being available. Good luck on CBS Eye on Money, your brand new podcast debuting next week. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Thanks so much.
0: Everyone, we'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanan, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio.
1: If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
0: Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladarys. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.